thank Kevin for inviting me to speak this morning. That's not always the case in churches I've been a part of that they would open the, the pulpit and share it with others, so thank you. Um, Kevin told me I had 25 minutes. Uh, we invite speakers to InterVarsity to speak, and normally we invite them. We give them a number like 30 because we know they're going to go over uh, 10 minutes or so. So I'm assuming my real number is closer to 35. Um, I could be wrong. They'll tell you. They'll tell me. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, well, for the sake of the, the little ones, uh, we're, we're trying to keep this short. So Romans 8.12, the very first word is, sorry, I move around a lot too when I talk, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and stay right here. Um, the very first word is therefore. And when I train students in scripture study and they see the word therefore, I always teach them to say, what's the therefore? Esther's got it. What's the therefore? Therefore. Um, because if you're saying therefore, it means that what I'm about to tell you is contingent upon you understanding what came before it. So I'm going to attempt to do a 30,000 foot flyover of Romans 6, 7, and the first half of 8 in about one minute. So in Romans 6, Paul has told us that as Christians that we are united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. When you come to saving faith in Jesus, you aren't just agreeing to a propositional truth of the gospel. You are actually united with him by his spirit. So it isn't just Jesus that died on a cross and raised to life. You died on the cross with Christ and have been raised to life as well. So there are some implications of that then that start to bear themselves out in chapter 7. Romans 7, 4 and 6 says, So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another. And by dying to what once bound us, the law, we've been released from the law, so we serve in the new way of the Spirit. But that's not a cakewalk. Paul goes in later in, in chapter 7 and starts saying, uh, The things I want to do, I do not do. The very things I hate, I do. And then he ends the chapter saying, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? It's like, oh, I want to follow the Lord. I have the spirit. I have the capacity. And yet, I'm this torn back and forth. This is the Christian life that Paul is presenting. And he says, who's going to rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And so we heard 8.1 last week. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're free. But we aren't to be controlled, however, by the sinful nature. We are to be controlled by the Spirit. And so our text starts today saying, therefore, we have an obligation. Yes, we're free from sin. Yes, I've, been, I've died with Christ. Yes, I'm out from under the burden and consequences of the law. And nevertheless, I have an obligation in my following of the Lord. So what we're going to see this morning is that we have an obligation to put to death our flesh and come to life as sons and daughters of a king who also bear a responsibility as heirs to start ushering in the kingdom of God here and now, the kingdom we will one day inherit. So let me pray, and we'll take a look at this text. Father, thank you that you have not left it to ourselves to figure out who you are. You've not left it to ourselves to figure out who we are. You have given us a sure and solid word by which we can know you and know ourselves. We pray, Spirit, that you would illumine us to the truth of your word and bring it 
to bear upon our lives that we would be transformed more and more into the men and women you designed and purposed us to be in Christ Jesus. We ask these things for your glory, Lord, and for our joy. In your name, amen. So let's take a look at this text. If you have your Bible, please open them up to Romans chapter 8, verse 12. Romans 8, verse 12. While you're doing that, start with a little story here. So um, I, I work with college students and have the, the joy and pleasure of not only knowing them for four years, but many of them become friends for life. And a few years back, uh, one of the, the couples that got married out of JMU InterVarsity uh, they decided to adopt uh, a couple children. They already had uh, three biological children, and they decided they wanted to, uh, to bless some other children through adoption. And so they navigated those difficult waters of, of international adoption and eventually found two brothers in Africa who had been raised in an orphanage, and they were three and five years old. Uh, they get them into the house, they bring them home, uh, start sharing life and doing life with them. Well, the mom begins to notice uh, that the pantry seems to be running thin more frequently than often. And at first she thinks, well, perhaps it's just because there's more mouths to feed in the house and I need to up the amount of groceries I'm getting. But she does that and starts to realize, no, there's just food straight missing from the pantry. And so she goes to investigate this and eventually comes to discover uh, that the little three-year-old had been stealing food in the middle of the night and hiding it under his bed. And as cute and as adorable as that is, they started to realize that there were a number of other issues that the children were needing to work through. And in fact, they needed to go to counseling. They, they were struggling with what's known as uh, post-orphanage behavioral syndrome. And uh, to, make, to make it very, it's a very complex, obviously, but to make it brief, uh, post-orphanage behavior syndrome is, is basically learned clusters of kind of learned behaviors that when you live in an orphanage are very effective and help you to adapt in, in that institutional setting. But when you're taken out of that institutional setting and placed in a family, they become maladaptive and counterproductive to being part of a trusting and loving community. This post-orphanage behavior syndrome is similar to what Paul is referring to as flesh. That all of us as Christians, have this complex web of emotions, motives, and thought patterns, instinctive responses that have been formed apart from faith in Christ. And these things are counterproductive and maladaptive to being a member of the family of God. They prevent us from trusting and keep us in a position of self-reliance, that it's up to me to make life work. And so this is what Paul is writing and referring to then in verses 12 and 13. He says, therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh, this self-reliant, instinctive postures that we've, we've grown up with. Not to live according to it, because if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. That, that, is, that just brings hardship into your relationship with God and into the family of God. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. So flesh, we're not talking about our skin. Flesh, we're not talking merely about immorality per se, breaking laws. We're talking about ingrained patterns, uh, not just even personality, temperament, and instinctive gut responses that have been developed in each and every one of us in unique and different ways 
that simply are inconsistent with being a person who trusts Jesus Christ. And so Paul wants us to see one of those primary maladaptive attitudes is fear. So look with me at verse 14 through 16. It says, those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Fear is one of the dominant notes of the flesh. Fear isn't, um, many of you think, I'm not a very fearful person, I'm not afraid. What are you talking about? Um, well, it's not terror. It's not being horrified. It's not necessarily even a phobia. Uh, let me see if I can illustrate it. Um, a few years ago, I was officiating a wedding for a, a student. We were down in um, Forest, Virginia, kind of outside of Lynchburg. And after the wedding was over, uh, you know, we have the, the ceremony, the celebration, and the reception. And one of the, one of the guys, my friends, comes up to me. His name's Teddy. I was like, Teddy, how are you doing? Because these are wedding, weddings are great. They're just like big reunions for us. All JMU and varsity people all gather back. You get to see all your friends. I said, Teddy, how are you doing? I was like, well, I'm kind of embarrassed. I was like, why are you embarrassed? He said, well, when I was driving here, he started getting into the story. I was driving here, and I had to take the Blue Ridge Parkway. And uh, Blue Ridge Parkway, if you've ever been up there, it, you know, it's kind of windy. It's like 35 miles an hour, no place to pass anybody. And, and Teddy was just driving, driving along, doing his best, you know, to kind of get, get to the wedding, and pulls up behind him, so this, this Audi TT sports car, and it's just tailing him, like, as close as can be, and so Teddy's like, yeah, I, I, I tapped on the brakes to kind of tell him to get off, but he wouldn't, and so a, a couple miles later, finally this guy just kind of pulls out and zips past him, and Teddy puts down his window and gives him some sign language, um, and I said, Teddy, well, that's, I mean, that's nothing to really be embarrassed about, it's like, I know that, uh, except when I pulled up, the Audi TT was parked in the parking lot, and the guy who was driving it is sitting at my table at the reception. <laughs> and so I said, I was like, well, point him out to me. And he points him out. I was like, that's Josh Blunt. I was like, just go tell him you're sorry. He's going to laugh. He's going to think it's hilarious. Josh, Josh is kind of a crazy, fun guy. So Teddy and I go over to Josh. And... Um, and says, like, you know, I feel kind of embarrassed. I flicked you off. And, and Josh is like, oh, no, it's not a big deal. I don't care. Um, I was like, why are, you, why are you driving so crazy, Josh? And Josh said, well, I didn't want, I want, I didn't want people to give me a hard time for being late. Um, and there it is, fear. Not afraid, per se. He's not terif terrified. But what he has is a, a, an internal sense. It's just in his flesh. There is this fear of his reputation being seen in a particular light that it's up to him to guard his reputation. That were he to show up late to a wedding and everyone's, you know, brides walking down the aisle and here comes Josh, that God somehow couldn't manage his reputation in the hearts and minds of others. So that's fear. That's flesh rising up. The issue wasn't that he was driving like a maniac. I mean, he probably shouldn't do that either. Uh, but the issue was that he was living out of his flesh. And it, it's, it's varied for all of us. Just this week, I had four, four fires I had to put out in InterVarsity. Two, one, a student who was disgruntled with us. One, a leader who was disgruntled with us. 
third, misprinted t-shirts, which we had done as a fundraiser, that we had to get them all reprinted and lost all of our, our money on it. Um, and then fourth, JMU comes at us saying, uh, we need a constitution from you for your organization. I'm like, what? I've been here for 25 years. I don't even ask for a constitution. What are you even talking about? And so my student leader is like, yeah, they need a constitution. I was like, this is silly. Uh, we, I don't even know what, what that is. And so I, I go into like crisis mode and I start Google searching college organization uh, constitutions and bylaws and stuff, and there's all these samples. I start downloading them and looking them up, and that Lindsay, our student, I'm like, did you hear anything from JMU? If they said they give it, if we get to them every year, they should have it on file, shouldn't they? Um, we've never given them one. And, and so eventually, long story short, Lindsay, Lindsay emails me back. She's like, oh, we found one. It's like from when Ed Good was on staff or something. Ed used to be on staff with the university. Uh, so back when, when our chapter was founded, they're like, oh, yeah, we got, we got one. I was like, okay, I thought you did. Um, but see, that was, that was in me, self-reliance. That, that was me driving to accomplish, make something happen, frantically getting on Google, add it to my to-do list. And you might be saying, CJ, isn't that your job? Shouldn't you be responsible? Absolutely, I should. The issue isn't being responsible. The issue is how I'm being responsible. What's driving me? Is it my flesh or is it my faith? See, faith doesn't get all uptight and anxious. There's a quietness and a stillness and a trust that says the Lord will provide for me all things. See, I'm a, I'm a child of God. I don't need to sneak down in the middle of the night to the cupboard and hoard food and keep it under my bed. No, my Father is going to provide for me. We are sons and we are daughters of a king who will provide all things for us. And there's no need for us to live in fear or out of self-reliant flesh. So, Psalm 131 is a help for us in this. Here's King David saying some pretty profound things. My, not, my heart is not proud, O Lord, my eyes are not haughty. That's great, right? And a leader... We don't want proud, haughty, self-centered, self-focused, I'm always right kind of leaders. <laughs> Just saying. It's, it's the Bible. Um, and then Dave, so we want, we want that, right? We want, we want humble leaders. And then he says, I do not concern myself with great matters. And that's, that's a head scratcher. He's like, well, you're the king. Shouldn't you concern yourself with great matters? Like, I think I, I'd, I'd really appreciate it if you took responsibility and did your job. And here's David saying, I don't concern myself with great matters and things too wonderful for me. And he tells us why. He gives us a little illustration. Verse 2. He says, I've stilled and quieted my soul. And he gives us a picture of what that looks like. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. He gives us this picture of a child who is no longer nursing, no longer sees the mother as a source of food, so that I don't have to clamor and I don't have to cry in the presence of my mom. I've learned that I will be provided for, and it's the image of like a little four-year-old boy who just got up from his nap and walks downstairs with his blanket, and his mom is sitting reading a book. And the little four-year-old just kind of climbs into his mom's lap and just sits there quietly, peaceably, not needing or wanting anything from her, just still and free in her presence. David says, that's what I'm like with God. Do I have great things to attend to? Certainly I do. Do I do them out of clamoring and anxiety and fear and worry in the flesh? Absolutely I do not. 
Well, how do we become that? How do we do that? Let me give you a, a practice. It's called apophatic prayer. Uh, most of us are familiar with cataphatic prayer. That means praying with language. Apophatic means praying other than language. So apophatic prayer, a way you can practice this, is uh, find a quiet place in your home, a chair where you can sit down, set an alarm, because you might fall asleep. That's okay. If that little boy falls asleep in his father or mother's lap, it's not a problem. Find a place where you can sit down, set an alarm, you're going to close your eyes, and you're going to just, I open up my hands like this, because I'm basically going to be giving God stuff. And I just, uh, I don't say anything, I don't do anything. I just sit there, eyes closed, and you know what starts to happen? I start to say things like, why are you doing this? <laughs> and I was like, this is stupid. How much time is on that timer? Or then my mind goes to, oh, dang it, you didn't get groceries. You're having those people over for dinner. Uh, all this stuff starts bubbling up. As soon as we, we try to quiet and still ourselves, the internal engine is still churning out the flesh. is saying, you need to do this. If you don't do that, this won't happen. And if you do this, that might be a bad thing. And so as I'm sitting there, as each thought arises within me, I say Psalm 46.10, I just say, be still and know that I am God. That's a reminder for me. Calm down. There's one who is sovereign and it's not you. <laughs> Speaking to myself, it's God. He's my father. I don't need to raid the kitchen to tend for myself. I don't need to be fearful about my responsibilities. They will be taken care of in due time. And so I sit there for 10, 15 minutes, quietly allowing all of these things to come up, and I'm not asking God for anything. That's cataphatic prayer. That's me taking words, and sometimes that can even be driven in the flesh. God, give me this. I need this. If I don't get this. And so instead, I just say, no, you're Lord. I'm going to be still. I can be quiet. I'm a son who belongs to a father who will provide for him all things. You are sovereign and providential. I need not worry. I have much to worry about, much I am responsible for, but the flesh will not rule. You will, Lord. You will, Spirit. And so I open myself up. And what this does is it becomes a practice which becomes a posture. It becomes the overriding posture of life so that when I'm late for a wedding and I'm driving my car and I feel like I need to get there, otherwise people are going to see me showing up late, instead I'm able to say to myself, be still and know that I'm God. It's all right. The Lord has you. So I want to encourage you, I want to invite you to, to start practicing this as part of your life. You can't just do this once. Uh, the, the Napotnik boys didn't get beastly huge because they went to the gym once. They got huge because they trained regularly, lifting weights, and brought their bodies to a place of strength. The same is true with our spirits. You can't just try something once and say, oh, that doesn't work. It's not about working. It's a relationship. So it's ongoing. I keep investing myself, posturing myself before the Lord uh, in various spiritual disciplines. But in this particular one, to enter into our sonship, our adoption, to say, I have a father who loves me. I need not live out of the flesh or out of fear. Now, we don't just sit in chairs and go like this all day long and be still uh, and remove ourselves from the world. No, we go back into it. Um, a quote from Moby Dick captures this well. It says, to ensure the greatest efficiency of the dart, that's the harpoon, 
to ensure the greatest efficiency of the dart, the harpooners of this world must rise to their feet from idleness and not toil. So what Millville is describing is the fact that physically speaking, those who are on the, uh, the whale hunt, on the whale boat, they need to be rested and ready to rise physically. So when it comes time to, to fire, shoot, throw, I don't know, what do, you, what do you do with a harpoon? Throw it? Shoot it? I don't know. Throw it? Scott says you throw it. I trust him. Um, that they're ready to go. Well, this is true of us spiritually as well, then. That, that inner stillness isn't just for me. It's so that I can then rise to the occasion on behalf of the kingdom of God so that it isn't just a me and Jesus thing, but it's me in service to my family thing. This is verse 17. Now, if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So I am an heir who will inherit the kingdom of God. And I need to begin now living out a life of faithfulness, responsibility, and authority to my father's rule. So um, think of it this way. If, if you're a, a renter, you guys rent beach houses, lake houses, cottages, whatever. You, you rent a house for vacation. You enter into that house and you kind of do whatever you want with the property uh, within reason. And you set the social agenda for what's going to happen because you're the renter. It's up to you. When you're a guest in someone's house, it's a little more tricky. There's a dance. You need to understand your host's style of living and their expectations. And you want to, at the same time, live your life freely. And so the use of the space and the social expectations become something nuanced and you're back and forth a little bit. But when you're a son, you actually need to take responsibility for the space and the social dynamics. I, um, I live, uh, share a backyard uh, with Ben and uh, Stevie Velker. And when I, my office windows look out over their backyard, and so I can see uh, Will running around playing all the time. Will's about, how old is Will? 10? Something like that? It's about 10. And so he's out there running around playing, having a good time. Sometimes he runs in the house, comes out with a snack or something. Sometimes I see him out there cutting the grass. Um, and here's the thing. If I were to go over to their backyard and just run in to the back of the house, grab me a snack, and sit out on their back porch, at one point, Stevie and Ben would probably be confused but forgiving and slightly laughable. But if I continue to do that, they would say, CJ, you are not a member of this family. <laughs> Please stop doing this unless you're invited. And what they're saying is, you don't have authority. This 10-year-old boy, he has authority. Why? He belongs to the family. CJ, you don't have the authority because you don't belong to the family, but family members have authority and responsibility to live according to their family's values and needs. This is us as children of God. Not out of fear in flesh, but out of stillness, wholeness, knowing that God will, will provide for us all that we need as we step into the work he's asked us to do in bringing his kingdom. So if you're here and you know Jesus Christ, you've received a spirit of sonship and you have an obligation. You have an obligation to silence the flesh, to put it to death, to come alive as sons and daughters living out of security and stillness 
knowing your father's providential care, and stepping into the work of his kingdom and your family's household. If you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ, might I suggest that fear actually is an appropriate emotion. If you feel that in your gut, it's because you're still under the condemnation of the law. And there's an opportunity for you to come out from under that condemnation. That's what this cross is. It is Jesus taking upon himself your sin, your brokenness, your condemnation, you dying with him and then rising again to new life, that you could be free from guilt and shame and then also restored to a right relationship with the Father who made you. So if you don't know Jesus Christ, I would invite you to come to him, call upon him, Say, Lord, I don't want to be self-reliant, self-determined, living in fear anymore. Instead, I want to know the stillness and security of a son and daughter. Call on him. Enter into new life. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. It is a truth and a solid rock that we can stand upon. Lord, plant our feet firmly in this word. And help us to live according to it. Help us not to simply shake off this as a, a Sunday morning message, but let us dig deeper into our own hearts, our own minds, revisit this word over and over again in this coming week. And Father, to begin to put into practice the things you're teaching us here today. It's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen.